Welcome to the D-Prince Movies Podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead curator of D-Prince Movies. We are a pop-up cinema based in London. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by actor, writer, director, Sam Stillman, an incredible new filmmaker, someone we're super excited about. We have his short film, Let's Get Lost, on the Deeper Channel, screening for free, starring Stella Schnabel and the great Peter Green. And we have his feature film, Honeybee, which is premiering on the channel, and we're super excited for both of these. And this is going to be really annoying. But we've seen his new film, which is not out yet, called The Little Prince of New York. And it's fucking incredible. It's his best thing yet. It was so good. I wanted to roundhouse my TV after I watched it. Watch this space. That's going to be amazing when it drops. Just some show notes and some recommendations to watch. On the podcast, we mentioned Kave Sahidi's show about the show. That's a web series. You can watch the entire thing on YouTube. Easiest way to describe it. It's like Curb Your Enthusiasm, where Kave is playing himself, a Brooklyn-based director trying to make a show. And he ends up making a show about him making a show. It's really meta. It's really self-reflexive really funny it's embarrassing and just really honest and fantastic and sam's in it and a bunch of sam's collaborators we also mentioned the british director alan clark just watch all his movies he's incredible he's a legend okay here's our heavy talk with sam stillman Can I start off by saying that that um, I mean just just for uh, you know I I'm just such a an enormous fan of uh, of deeper into movies and and what you guys were doing I, I I was in England two years ago and I saw three Caravaggios I saw two Da Vinci's I saw something I was told was David but was actually a recreation by and I couldn't see a fucking movie. I could not find a fucking movie. And I said, I thought this was London. I thought this was like, you know, once the capital of, of Western civilization. Like, what the fuck is happening? And um, there was a gulf there. And I know you guys were in existence at that point. I was not aware of it. But I am now. And, and I, I really look forward to one day sitting in, in a theater in London and seeing what you play. Sean Price Williams said the same thing. That he was really struggling for good movies when he was in London and didn't know we exist does does he now yes all right yeah we're friendly he knows now i think it's just the nature of us being a pop-up cinema without a designated space or home you know yeah people have kind of got something you want to do do you want a forever home i do but the overhead scare the shit out of me 
And I like the fact that if we say a pop-up, we can keep the taste levels really high. We don't have to worry about showing mainstream movies mm-hmm. and stuff to pay for rent and just be really picky. How are the audiences responding? And any of them like this crazy shit? Yeah, man, we've got a great audience of really cool cinephiles, people who love cool movies and overlooked movies, underseen stuff, I'm, you know, because who else is showing that shit right now? I'm so happy to hear that. So, wait, how did you become aware of uh, of of uh, me, of, of these of these couple of movies I, I've been a part of? Because I'm such a nerd, I was going through the cinematographer Sean Price Williams filmography and I was on IMDb. I saw Let's Get Lost. I thought, okay, this is probably in reference to the Bruce Weber documentary on Chet Baker. And so, yeah, I just watched it straight away. Man, I ran into Bruce Weber once outside Alice Tully Hall in New York. And I went up to him. I said, Bruce, you know, hey, I owe you money. And, you know, and, and he said, who the fuck are you? And that was it. <laughs> um, I thought that was like a cute opening. Maybe he'd ask why and I could tell him about my movie. But uh, no such luck. I mean, you know, Bruce is Bruce is the big homie. That documentary is uh, immortal. The um, the cinematographer follows us on our page. The, uh, Jeff no Priest. way. No yeah. way. We'll tell Jeff I owe him money. He's amazing. He's been really friendly. I spammed him on DM just asking him loads of questions about <sighs> shooting those. Like the bumper car scene really sticks with yeah. me. And just the scenes in the back of a car where he's Come like, on. he's got like two girls with him and his hair's blowing in of the wind course. and the soft top and stuff. Of course. But he really downplayed it. He just said with a face like Chet's and some Kodak black and white stock, that's just kind of all you need to have those type well, that's of moments. A, that's a real cinematographer talking. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it was big homie uh, JC who said um, uh, he'd never seen a a perfect shot of a, of a shitty performance, you know? And, and, oh, wow. Uh, there, there's something to that. I mean, I, the cinematographers, obviously Sean, you know, Sean was trained with the Maisels um, and... Uh, you know, the first time I ever wrote an email to Sean, I think must have been like eight years ago now. And, um, you know, I was just some kid haunting him, you know, because, you know, a, a cinematographer is kind of like when you're a teenager and, and, you know, you and your friends want to start a band and you have these songs and you have these yeah. ideas. The cinematographer is the drummer, meaning you're completely full of shit until you have one, you know? Right. Right. Uh, you don't have a band without a drummer. You don't have a movie without a without a cinematographer. And um, Sean is obvious to me. It, it's obvious that he's one of the best people to ever do it. And um, the idea that that, you know, he was a uh, email away was insane to me. Um, but part of the reason I, I love him so much and the reason it took me six years to work with him after meeting him, after getting to know him, is because my the entirety of my job was to make an environment and and make it and 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 facilitate an environment and facilitate a cast that would be fucking interesting to him. Put something yeah. in front of his camera to shoot, and once if you can do that, then you're off to the races and you don't have any fucking problems. Um, but 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 
but just about the faces and about what the DP uh, of, of Let's Get Lost, the original, the actual Let's Get Lost documentary, said, like, yeah, the, the DPs I'm drawn to, just they, they, they only give a fuck about uh, the face in front of them. Your film had a real effect on me because it starts on this really dark scene mm-hmm. and you see a couple having an argument and you hear Peter Green shout, they're my friends, Ozzy. And I hadn't even seen their faces yet, and I didn't even know what the fuck the film was about. But that line, I was like, fuck, that sounds like mm-hmm. a real classic movie line. That sounds like something you'd hear in one of those amazing 70s movies or something. And yeah, I was hooked. I hadn't seen any of the faces. I didn't know what the film was about, but that line just really drew me in. And I knew I was going to like the movie. Well, that's all Peter, man. I mean, like, Peter... Um, you know, Peter was a, was a casting suggestion from someone that wasn't involved with the film. And we were like, oh, that's an incredible idea. Uh, can you reach out to him? And that person was like, I don't fucking know Peter Green. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so me and Elaine or went on like Instagram, uh, you know, she had casted Necro for heaven knows what. And apparently Necro and, and Peter were friends. Anyway, it was this whole thing to, to get him. And then when we met him uh, at Cafe Reggio, he was the... It was like meeting an ancient knight. He was the um, most masculine person I, I, I think I've ever met. And by that, I mean like that this classic masculinity, um, which someone, I think Mickey Rourke defined as a gentleness built on strength. And he was the most gentle, one of the most gentle people I've ever met. Eleanor had a toothache. And so he ran across the street on, on like, you know, West Third or whatever, Sullivan Street because he knew a good Vietnamese soup spot and went and got her a soup and brought it back to Cafe Reggio and and it and she loved it. She loved the soup and he, he anyway, he was just the sweetest guy. But as an actor, I mean, he was just like a he was just like this motorcycle that's that someone lets you borrow. Like it was this perfect, responsive, in, incredible thing that just came in, made your movie and then left and it was just one of the the joys of my life filming him. Yeah, he's got one of those faces that you don't see in movies that often anymore. I stole this mm-hmm. um, quote from Robert Rodriguez was saying when he was filming Machete, they asked him, what drove you to the project? And he was like, I got a, su- I got a new red camera that could work ultra HD. And I wanted to shoot Danny Trejo in HD. And he mm-hmm. just said, Danny Trejo has a high definition face. Uh-huh. And so I start every time I'd see these when I was watching like my favorite movies and I see like Ben Gazzara or Shelley Duvall or Sissy Spacek or Harry Dean Stanton, I'm like, that guy's got a high defini- definition face. These are you the know, type of faces so that you don't see anymore. It's so funny what you're describing because um, that was another revolutionary moment in in film, there was this uh, casting director, um, Marion Doherty, and she. Uh, there's a documentary about her now. But what happened was, you know, for, for for most of the history of film, it was the stable and the star system and things like that. You know, and like MGM had more stars than there are in the sky in heaven or whatever. And at that time, Stanislavski began to take root in in New York theater 
uh, Marlon Brando was obviously like the the forerunner of all that, but he trained under Stella Adler, who who, who had trained under Stanislavski and so on and so forth. But in New York, this revolution happened. And with actors like Gene Hackman or, or Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, you know, all these people. And uh, Cassavetes and Peter Falk were actually the just before what happened in the six, late 60s and 70s in terms of casting. And um, Marion Doherty would go to New York theaters, find these incredible actors, put them in these hour-long live dramas that would happen on television, the golden age of television, they called it. And, uh, yeah, Marion Doherty changed, uh, you know, this uh, sport we like so much forever. And, you know, casting is like a... Casting is... um, Movies are just a means of casting, you know? It's just an excuse to, to... have wonderful people do wonderful things and uh and and she uh she changed that forever how did you manage to have two incredible dops on your short that's a real coup well i mean sean i'd been talking with sean forever and i felt like i had finally gotten something together that would interest him and interest his camera because when sean's camera gets interested this like fog materializes out of nowhere and seeps into the pores of the actors and the audience. And it just casts this weird spell, you know? Um, And I finally thought I had something where where, where that would be fun for him. Um, And Hunter, um, I got, I got into movies um, because um, I fell in love with this young actor, uh, and uh, Thornwell May, this incredible person who was acting at the time, and I, I put this whole movie around him called Freak of Love, and, you, and you'll and you'll never see it because I learned everything I know about directing when Hunter Zimney quit. Uh, and oh I wow! Learned, uh, yeah, yeah, I, and uh, I can't even uh, talk about that movie. Um, but so Hunter, you know, by quitting, taught me everything I know about the job, which I, I believe is serving, um, is, a, is a position of, of servility and serving the DP, serving the boom op, serving the actors, serving the audience, when I didn't know that yet. And um, so I would wanted to, to get back to Hunter for many years too. And Hunter had been training under Sean, obviously, as an apprentice um, on many films. And so I thought it'd be wonderful if they came together. And um, yeah. I was just very lucky. Two questions. Do you know what specifically got Sean excited about doing the project? And how did you win Hunter back? Well, I'm not going to claim Sean was excited about doing the project. (laughs) Um, I just knew that Sean's lens would be interested in what was in front of him. And that was because of Eleanor Hendricks and and her casting. You know, the the people are incredible. Um, And so... If the people are incredible, then Sean will have a good time, um, at least while he's filming. But um, and then I got Hunter back, um, you know, essentially, I hope by uh, you know, earning, earnings some amount of trust from him. Or, you know, yeah. How how many nights were you shooting? That was four nights. And I'm guessing, were you stealing all those shots in Lincoln Center? 
Yes. Awesome. Was yeah. That, how was that? <laughs> I mean, shooting Lincoln Center is no joke, man. I mean, they got their own security. They got like SWAT teams on the roofs. They got they they will shut you down in a second. And so I had reached out to them months in advance and saying, "Hey, we're doing this movie. We would love to shoot here, blah blah." And they and you know, after many emails, they said, "Okay, you can shoot here, thirty thousand dollars." And I said, "Oh, thanks. Um, that's not going to happen." Um, and so. The, a few days before, I we were thinking of ways to, to steal it. We were thinking of a backup plan. Washington Square Park is a backup, which, you know, is a beautiful place, but it's not Lincoln Center. Um, and so um, my friend KJ, his, his younger brother, was working on the movie and still had his college email address. So I wrote an email for Ian being like, hey, me and my friends are doing our college movie. It's just like a camera and two actors, and we just want to walk through. Would that be okay? And they were like, yes, that'd be okay. You have one hour. Well, we need a lot more than one hour. So the morning of, we took that email, made a PDF of it, photoshopped it to say five hours. Oh, and and leading up to this, I'd gone and talked to security at Lincoln Center. And I said, so wait, what happens when you shoot? And he said, all right, you need to talk to this person, this person, this person. And if you get permission, make sure, make sure, young man, you bring a printout of the email. And I said, oh my God. That's the system, a printout of the phone. So we photoshopped the email, printed it out, and we had the place for the whole night. That's amazing. Yeah. I kind of miss stealing shots. When I, used to, when I used to shoot films after film school, I had one of those Sony pocket cameras, like the real mini DV ones that they used to use on like for dogma movies and stuff, mm. and, and just like put it in my coat pocket and then shoot conversations in like record stores and restaurants and stuff because... Like you were saying, everyone would say, yeah, that's cool, but we, we need like a thousand pound for any Wait, afternoon's what, shoot. What were you shooting? Just, I'd, I was doing a music video and I just wanted, I had this whole, um, to preface this, I was, uh, this was when I was in my early 20s and like an indie kid. So early, early 2000s vibes, music video where it was just like people like a couple going around record stores and going to gigs and stuff. And I just wanted to capture all these moments, but everyone would just shut you down. If you say, I want to do a music video or we need a fee and stuff. So I just bring a tiny pocket camera and just tell them to go be themselves, go record browsing. And I'd just shoot them through my <laughs> hole in my jacket with my camera in it and stuff. People pay a lot of money for that aesthetic. Yeah. It's a real thing now. Let's talk about Stella. How did you get her into the project? I mean, again, it started with Eleanor. Um, you know, a lot of the ways uh, these movies start is, is, is Eleanor is like, oh, this person needs a movie. And then before I ever meet them, I set about writing something for them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Eleanor and Stella had known each other for many years. Um, and Ele but Eleanor had been aware of Stella as an actress for many years and told me Stella needs a movie. Um, and so I had some idea, I was struggling, and Eleanor was like, make it a jazz club. And I was like, bet, wrote it in like two weeks or something. Um, we just, um, you know, I think we had gone it to Stella in the spring and she said she liked it. And then there was this other movie that um, I had co-written in a Leonor cast. It was a, a much larger feature film and, and Stella was in that. And so 
we got to work together a little bit. I, I had helped AD the production and stuff, so she got to, you know, test us out a little bit, and it, it worked well. And then, you know, and then we were off to the races. I, she was in. I just had to go, you know, get the crew, get the locations and all that. And yesterday I, I was watching Carve's show about the show for the first time. Masterpiece. Yeah. And... It was so weird. I was watching it. I, I had Instagrammed Eleanor saying, has she got any cool photos of you that we can use for socials um, to promote the Did film? Did she have any? Yeah, I'll send you from over. I've got uh, a yeah, short cool. list. <laughs> and then she pops up on the show and you popped up in the show and I didn't realize either of you were in Carve's TV show. Mm. And then you messaged me saying, I need to call you right now. And it just felt like I was in a fucking David Lynch, Mulholland Drive <laughs> moment where everything was coming off the screen. But mm. um, yeah, that's how is it playing? I can't even work out what's fact or fiction in Carve's world. It just seems everything, everyone's playing a version of themselves and he's then asking them to recreate real scenes that had happened on the show. And it's just so... It's so easy to watch and enjoyable, but it's so meta and self-reflexive that it's simple and complicated at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, the final mystification of working with Kaveh Zahedi was the realization that Kaveh is not the person talking to you in that show. Kaveh is the person editing that show. Right. So beyond all the, the, the levels of reality... There's another where um, it's almost like a magician does a magic trick, shows you how he did it, and then disappears in a puff of smoke. You know what I mean? And, and then you don't you can't figure out any of it. Um, I mean, with Kaveh, it was terrifying, man. It was terrifying because except for a couple scenes, everything you see was performance, you know, and in that it's not very different from anything else. It, you're always... Uh, in a certain world of acting, the, the world that I that I'm interested in, uh, whether it's acting or filming or whatever, you're you're playing yourself. You, maybe you're playing yourself 300 years ago with a broken leg, and you're in you're you're in a fucking Scottish rebellion. I don't know, but you're playing yourself because that's you know that's what's interesting to me about art is the the expression of yourself in a in a way that's useful to the audience. You know, uh, I don't want to see your imitation of some fictional character. I want to see you, you know? Um, and so in that, it's, it's just the same. I was playing of, of an interpretation of myself. Um, just, it's not normally named Sam Stillman. You know, it's normally has a different name and the audience normally knows you're acting or pretending or yeah. whatever. And the character I'm playing is a fucking asshole. So I was yeah. like, all right. <laughs> um, there was enough in it for me to believe in. Like all the things that he depicted happened for, for one, but that's not the part I believe in. Lots of shit happens. It's not worth filming. Um, the, I believe in the character enough to, to play it. There was a, there was something useful about him. He was like a sort of woodland sprite avenging angel archetype, you know, this weird fucking out of the forest to, to test the morality of the director kind of thing. Uh, and, and eventually be defeated by the director too, which was very important. So I, I, I could dig the mythology of it. Um, 
uh, and then there was a test to me. Um, I remember he showed me the next episode where I was really an asshole. And I was like, I can't do this, man. Like, this is terrible. Like, this is, you know, my name. Like, people are going to think I'm a fucking idiot. Like, blah, blah, blah. All these normal concerns. And then the question was, with this art form, what are you, what are you here for? Like, are you here to be perceived a certain way? Are you here to um, propagate some fucking propaganda about yourself? Are you here... Um, are you here to do anything besides sacrifice yourself for the further um, deification of, of, of the human individual and, and, and the depiction of our con human condition and all its reality and controversy and whatever else? Like, what are you here to do? And the answer was, I'm, I guess I'm here to look pretty, you know, because this is scary to me. But luckily, Elaine helped me. I, I, I had the wisdom, was given the wisdom to do this terribly uncomfortable thing. Uh, in the name of these things I purportedly believe in, and uh, did it, and I was, I'm very, very happy I did. I think it's a, I think it's a beautiful piece of filmmaking. But it's even down to the point where you're showing him the script for Honeybee, mm -hmm. and you're trying to convince him to produce it with you or make it with you. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are all <laughs> fucking idiot kid. <laughs> It just goes so Kale, deep. I know you have money. <laughs> like I was, yeah. you know, it was, and honestly, that whole thing was such a rite of passage for me in, in, in many ways. Um, Were you trying to get Kave to produce the movie, or was that just? I mean, what you saw was a was a was a recreation of that moment, right? Of course. I mean, look at the camera angles. I mean, that's what's so fucking part of what's so incredible about his movie. Is, is like people are like, oh, is it real? Is it not? Like, of course it's not real. Like, he's cutting. There are camera angles. I have a lavalier microphone on. Like, it, yeah. of course it's a production. But it's so good that you forget, which, is, you know, you should always forget that in movies. Um, but yeah, you know, all of that is very much part of the truth of who I was at that time. Um, obviously, the actual truth is, is, is much larger you know not necessarily better or worse but it's it's a character it's a depiction you know it's, but it's but yeah all that stuff happened i love a detail of you reading harmony corinne's book while you're sitting on the couch and he's reading a script that was such a great it's a great book Tell me about Honeybee. When you when, tell me about Honeybee. <laughs> <laughs> your your initial pitch was so great. I think you just told me you said, "Look, it's really long, it's ugly, it's raw, it's not for everyone." And I was just like, "Sold." I need to see this instantly. This sounds perfect mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. And and you you watched it? Of course. What what did you think? It was great. Um, I'm very glad it, it was a successful viewing for you. How do you feel about it? Um, I would never, ever, 
ever share it with the world if I didn't absolutely love it. Um, you know, you could put the QR code for that Vimeo link on my fucking tombstone. Uh, however, it was in a, you know, pretty much when I started making that movie, you know, I started making that movie because the, the summer everyone quit the first movie. Yeah. That year was incredibly transformative. Uh, you know, in that time, I quit drugs, which I had done every day of my life from the age of 12. I had quit uh, crashing motorcycles and, you know, all, all that stuff um, f- to make movies. It wasn't like some general rehabilitation thing. It was like, you can't ask people to join you on something unless you are, unless that's an appropriate request. And the only way that can be an appropriate request is with a great deal of change and, and of sacrifice and, and, and stuff like that. Um, but in that year, I'd been trying to to show my, my collaborators on Freak of Love the, this transition, which, you know, if you if you have to show them, you are you already lost. You know what I mean? Like, it has right. to be there. And it wasn't happening and it shouldn't have happened because I, I hadn't earned it. Um, and Eleanor, you know, who is always skeptical of anything I, I, I'm doing or any idea I have or any, you know, she... She is the the moral metric test of whether or not other people should ever be involved with any stupid idea I have, you know. But she said you should do something else, and um, I said okay. So Freak of Love had to die, which I, you know I had to die with it. That was a hor- a horrible failure, um, unconscionable loss, like you know just a failure, which is not something excusable. Anyway, so with Honeybee Man, it was like. There, there was like two theories behind it. One is, um, I don't know how to play saxophone and I don't know how to paint, but if I go uh, listen to like Coltrane or, you know, listen to Itzhak Perlman or, 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 or see a car, I feel something, right? And I think that's because you and me are the same exact person, same exact person under enormously different circumstances. Um, and so if you express yourself honestly, it will resonate in me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if that is in place, the movie can be effective. The other thing behind it was, to me, um, a movie is, is, is one thing. It's a moral. That's all it is. Um, and that's not true. That's not the only thing a movie is, blah, blah, blah. That's the only thing I'm interested in. And so I wanted to see if a moral could sustain every frame of a movie. And um, I think in those two things, it's, it's a complete success. I think it is expressive. I think it does resonate with the audience on its own terms, uh, if depending on the audience person. And I think um, the theme, the moral does sustain every frame of the movie because Lord knows nothing else does, you know. Uh, so for me, that's wonderful. And then when the movie was finished after three years, um, I showed it to an audience and it was weird because I was like, oh wait, this part doesn't matter? Why Why shouldn't it matter? It didn't matter to me. And um, this whole idea of like, oh, you make movies for yourself. you know? No, you fucking don't. No, you don't. I can express myself in my fucking closet. I can express myself with a cardboard sign outside McDonald's. If I'm gonna ask someone to take two hours out of their life and watch something I made, I better fucking love them, right? I better be offering something. 
you know, I'm not going to open a sandwich shop and have people pay $8 to watch me eat a sandwich, you know? Yeah. Right. Unfortunately, that that is the case with Honeybee. Uh, I hadn't discovered the audience yet. I hadn't discovered a, a relationship to them yet. Um, and so that's the only caveat I have with that movie. For people like you who are initiated into into this the selfish world of cinema and all, and all that stuff, maybe the movie is very effective. Um, but I can I can attest it does not love the audience, and, and uh, that's something I I hope to do in the you know now if I don't love the audience I don't make a fucking movie. So that's something you carry through to all your work now. Yeah, it was something Jake Perlin told me. That's the. He said, if you don't love the audience, get the fuck out of the theater. Those weren't his exact words, but that was the message. So, um, how long were you shooting for? It seems, again, it looks like there's loads of really interesting stolen shots. What, what were you hiding the camera for those street scenes? Oh, I mean, that's the other thing. Jason Banker, the cinematographer, made that movie. He made that movie. Um, I set up this situation and the scenario and, and, and facilitated Eleanor's casting, but I learned everything I know about camera theory, editing his footage uh, a year later. Who, was wi- who also weirdly popped up in Carve's mm-hmm. show about the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. yeah. That, was re- that was really a Twin Peaks experience. <laughs> But yeah, I really wasn't like the whole Times Square sequence, um, the whole Met Museum sequence. I was holding his bags and and her clothes like a block away. And when they came back, judging by the expression on their face, I would figure out whether or not we need to do it again. If they were happy, (laughs) we were good. You know, there was no camera assist. There was nothing. I I found out what happened, you know, a week later in in editing. Shit. So did you give him a brief as to... The beginning and end of a scene or did you just let that did you just have trust in them as actors to go deliver well, something I mean, this is everything besides the the jimmy scene by the way which is right. a 35 fucking minute monologue that russell james peters delivers in the middle of the movie um that was completely scripted and they rehearsed that scene for eight months before the shoot um but yeah but for everything else um i mean i relied too much on the actors for, for improvisation. All of uh, Martin Sabater's dialogue at, at the museum, all of that is improvised. All of Joshua Yuffie's dialogue in the, in the carriage is, is improvised. Uh, you know, I relied on them too much. Um, but, and I mean, in the end, I, this is something I just sort of believe about the job, um, about directing in general, and you know, all of this is unproven or whatever, and, and there's a million valid approaches, but the approach that I seem to like is, um, I think the only job of the director is to happen to care more than everyone else. Mm-hmm. Like the DP should not care that much. You know, like the, the sound operator should not care. They should go home, take a bath, think about something else, and hopefully show up the next day, you know. Um, the actors should care, but not about, they shouldn't care too much. Um, <laughs> My job is to like not think about anything else for three years. And um, by doing that, just sort of be the context. And so whether it's scripted or not, um, and in, the, in the, the previous films have all been very scripted, but um, the context defines like if you shoot over the head uh, to Honey Bee, 
it's not the moral quality necessary. You're with her. You're not looking at her. You're with her. You know, and so that that kind of direction just be the fucking context. And so with all the improvisation or anything, like everyone knew what this movie was. Everyone knew what we were there to do, what 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 it was about. And in and in that context, they can do whatever the fuck they want. It's not out yet, but we have to talk about your amazing new short film, The Little Prince of New York. Sure. Sure. I mean, the initial idea for that movie was three years ago, Eleanor Hendricks ran into this young man on the corner of 11th and 1st and was extremely taken by him. And his name is Aladine Jalouli. And over the course of the next three years, Eleanor got to know him, know his father, Mohammed, his brothers, Islam and Saifedean, got to know his whole family and put him up for roles, put him up you know, for other projects. And, and they didn't they didn't see it, apparently. And then on Let's Get Lost, she kept running into him while we were shooting, kept run, ran into him at 7-Eleven, ran into him on the sub, like kept running into him and eventually begged him to come to set. And he came to set. Now, that script was like, I don't know, 30 pages or something, four yeah. shoot days, everything very, very, you know, not a lot of extra time or money or anything, nothing. And I was like, all right, I'm going to improvise a whole scene with this kid because he's obviously a movie star. And he said, no. And I said, all right, you're, you're definitely a movie star. <laughs> uh, I'm going to come back for you. Um, and then after Let's Get Lost, me and the producer, Andre Bojanik, uh, we were trying to make this this big movie and ended up spinning our wheels a little bit. And um, Elena said, write something for Aladdin. And so I, I sat down and, and three weeks later, I, I stood up with a 180-page script called The Little Prince of New York. And we sent it to some folks and some folks said, yeah, we're in, um, let's go. And then the pandemic happened. But in between them saying we're in and the pandemic happening, we had told Aladdin, you're going to be in a movie this summer. And if you say that to someone, that's now what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and so for, uh, for four months we were rehearsing with him and if you see the performance one day, uh, I'd like to say, you know, for four months, uh, we, 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 we made this actor bullshit. For four months, we bored the shit out of this 15-year-old kid. Mm -hmm. And then he showed up on day one and, one of, and was one of the finest actors I've ever worked with in my life. Um, just masterful. Just like as if he had been doing it for 50 years. Like knew his angles, cut lines that didn't fit with the rhythm. Like just, 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 it was weird. Um, yeah. That's how that movie happened. So how did he take, did he take convincing or was it, since he, w he wouldn't do the improvisation, so how was the process of convincing no, him to... Improvisation went out with Honey Bee. I think, right. I think improvisation is unfair to the actors. Um, I mean, what I say about that, when I work with the actors, who often want to improvise, you know? I, I say, like, I never licked that guy's asshole means seven different things, depending on which word you stress. <laughs> I never licked. I never licked. I never licked. I never licked that guy. You know, so it, the line doesn't fucking matter. It's what you do with it. And so everything else is fucking improvised. I don't do fucking line reading, whatever. But just let the lines be what they are. And if you don't like them, let me let me see that you don't like them. You know, like, f like fuck the lines, you know? I mean, Itzhak Perlman can play Bach and, you know, someone else can. And, and it'll be two completely different songs, you know? Um, but 
the, the four months with Aladdin were essentially us earning his attention. He's, he's already incredible. He doesn't need anything from us. Um, he did us an enormous favor by doing this movie. And then so did everyone else who worked on it. Um, but yeah, for four months, we spent, you know, that time earning his attention, maybe earning some of his trust. Um, and, you know, the, the one thing I wouldn't do is make a movie with a kid in which that kid is sort of an automaton. You, you see that a lot in movies with kids. I mean, obviously, there's an incredible tradition to these movies. Bichot, uh, Angelo, My Love, Out of the Blue, Kid with a Bike, you know, these, these runaway movies. Yeah. Little Fugitive. But you do see movies where the kid is, like, good looking and just sort of is told where to stand or whatever. You know, you see that sometimes. We don't make a movie unless it's unless that actor owns the fucking movie right unless it's their movie yeah and we just we just happen to be there my job is to make sure there are batteries in the camera that's it it's their fucking movie and so to do that they have to they have to trust you and they have to know that that's what you want you know because a lot of people come up to people and say hey i want to make a movie you want to be in it and then for fucking four days they have to watch the director fucking scream about eye lines and lose his fucking mind and have a nervous breakdown and like fire the fucking PA you know what I mean they, they need to know that, that you love them more than you love the movie you know yeah and so for, for four months that, that's what we did what movies is he into or what movies did you screen him that he did yeah, I mean he, he's 16 he doesn't give a shit about movies <laughs> he is a movie I mean, like, yeah, we, you know, we, we, we did want to show him the the, the the sort of tradition to this. And so we showed him a fucking, we showed him Bad Lieutenant, <laughs> which was a weird movie to show a kid. I mean, Aladdin's dad is an actor and, oh. so, and, and no, knows Peter Green, actually, and stuff. Uh, he was a stage actor in the 90s. So, you know, Aladdin is not distant from the artistic tradition. But um, I wanted to show him Bad Lieutenant because I think that is a performance with complete autonomy with, with, with where like if the camera's on Harvey you're good mm-hmm. you know what I mean and uh, that, and that's what we were going for Gloria did you, did you show him Gloria you know Gloria you know when, when we talk about people like Abel Ferrara or John Cassavetes yeah um, I mean we're talking about heroes yeah you know like real, real heroes, mythological heroes. Uh, but the thing about heroes is that they go into the forest, up the mountain, find the diamond or the crystal or the princess, right? And then they bring it back. So the hero is only as valid as they are helpful to the world, mm-hmm. right? So when we call them a hero, what we're saying is like, they went out and got the crystal and brought it back to us, and now it's ours. Yeah. Right. So we have to now do something with it. You know, like yeah, like a big mythological hero, whether or not he walked on water, is Jesus. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I don't know. But now it's a story. Now it's a mythology. Right. Yeah. And I I I think about these people the same way I think about people think about Jesus. They died for my sins. So, right, so like yeah. John Cassavetes is John fucking Cassavetes, but he's dead. Yeah. So now it's on us to do better. Carry Anyone do better? He already fucking did it. He's good. He's he's in heaven now. He's he's immortal. He's in the pantheon. 
he doesn't need us to fucking worship him. He needs us to do better. And actually the last shot of Love Streams is him waving goodbye at the camera saying, while the soundtrack plays, I leave it up for to you. I think I think he knew this. Um Fuck, yeah. And so Yeah. And that that was like his last personal movie. Mm-hmm. I didn't even think about it. I mean, that. I think Gloria is deeply personal. I think Gloria is deeply personal. I mean, you want to talk about Gloria. This is a director who knows he's going to die. Right? He knows he's going to die. And Jenna is obviously, besides being one of the greatest actors to ever appear in front of a camera, um, he obviously loved her very, very much. And he knows he's not going to grow old with her. And the last shot of that movie is the the young man in the graveyard and the woman gets out of the car and she has a gray wig or yeah. she has gray hair and he doesn't know who she is and then she runs to him and they run to each other and she takes off her wig showing her blonde hair and they embrace and the and the movie ends i think it was his goodbye letter <sighs> to to uh to his wife um to his favorite actor and he's a man who worshiped actors um, obviously, you know, that kid you can say is an avatar for John. I, I think that movie is deeply personal, deeply personal. Yeah, it's one of my favorites of his. I think it kind of gets overlooked as uh, like a gun for hire movie, but I think it's amazing, especially the kid's performance. He treats him on the level as he does, you know, um, Peter Falk, Gazara, and those. He's not. I don't even know that kid's name. But he's an incredible actor. The, the thing is that back then, to set up a shot, it cost $100,000 fucking dollars. You know, the camera was enormous and heavy, and you had fucking 40 people running sound, you know, all that shit. And so, the, the, you know, the actor isn't acting until they're having fun. And there was so much more shit in the way of having fun back then. Now a crew can be a one person, mm. really. Jason Banker was the crew. On Honeybee. He did sound and camera. He was the crew. Um, so I think that Aladdin, uh, that we uh, enormously benefited from the the, uh, the the technological advancement since Gloria. And, you know, um, I would never, ever, ever say, uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't even know what I'm, what, what, what I would be getting at Gloria is a, is a, immortal piece of human expression but john is dead it's on us to do better that's 100 percent the job we live on ground that 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 he cleared um and i do think that that acting today benefits enormously from from sleeker crews let's talk about cinema today what directors working do you admire whose movies are cool well, I mean, I, I will say, like, what John Cassavetes and Abel and everyone did doesn't start with Lumiere. It, it starts, this is a long, long history. Um, you know, something about what you do that I find so holy. Um, there's this book, The Swerve. It was like this, you know, bestseller pop history book that came out. Um, and in it, it's about this poem by Lucretius, this this poet that lived around 45 AD, who wrote a poem called On the Nature of Things. Um, and this poem essentially 
was the beginning of the idea that human beings are divine. Um, and I love religion. I love all religion. But a lot of it, I mean, Jesus come da- came down and said, do this, this, and this. And we said, no, but I'm sorry. I'm, no, we could have just done it, right? Like, so a lot of religion gets caught up with, you know, human frailty and guilt and all, all these things. In its essence, it's about the deification of us. You know, why would we tell a story that doesn't give us dignity? And so he wrote this poem that set up this idea of a secular holiness, right? Um, and then in the Middle Ages, the poem was rediscovered and, and these monks w- would copy it down by hand because that's how we have all literature from before Gutenberg. And if they were caught doing that, they would be, uh, I mean, uh, they would, people would put their hands on these monks and drag them out of their room and tie them to a piece of wood and put wood under them and, and set that wood on fire and those monks would be burnt alive until until they were murdered and their life was extinguished. And because of those monks, we now have Lucretius and because of Lucretius, we have Whitman and because of Whitman, you know, you know, so on and so fucking forth, you know? And uh, so this John Cassavetes, I mean, cinema, Leon Battista Alberti, he was a Renaissance philosopher. He said, man is the mortal God. And, and this idea of humanism was born in the Renaissance uh, in Florence. Um, and if that's true, then movies are, are that God's church. These are moral stories with no middleman, no, no father complex, no virgin mother, no, no, no God. It's just a person on screen that either does the right thing or doesn't and suffers the consequences. And that person, the next week, plays someone else. And the director, you and me might give a fuck about directors. No one gives a fuck about directors. No, If I ask you who directed the last X-Men movie, who the, who the fuck knows? No one gives a shit. It's not a, an authority figure. There is no authority figure. The authority is the person in the audience. It is the humanistic religion. And so you talk about John Cassavetes and Abel Ferrara and, and, and you know, uh, Barbara Loden and, and um, you know, um, Daryl Zanuck and, and, and William Wyler and, and uh, you know, all, all these people, right, telling these stories. Well, no, it goes back long before that, long before that. And um, so who's carrying the torch? You know, the last hundred years have been the blink of an eye. We are carrying the fucking torch, mm-hmm. you know. And it's not of Cassavetes, it's of the human individual. Um, but filmmakers today that, that I love, um, I mean, I, you know, I love everyone who, who decides to pick up a camera. Um, friends of mine have, have made very beautiful films recently. Sam Guest and Juliet Bayless made a movie called Wiggle Room that played at um, Sundance in South by Southwest, thank God. And, and that's a very beautiful movie. Um, my friend KJ Rothweiler and Rebecca Simone Minty are making a film called Salamander Days that I think is going to be very beautiful. Um, in terms of the human religion, I mean, Josh and Benny are big homie. Um, what they do, they they obviously come from this tradition, the stylistic tradition of, of John Cassavetes and Abel Ferrara and and people who didn't really give a shit about 
uh, the frame and cared more about the subject. I mean, this is a pretty revolutionary change in cinema to, to not care about the Dolly track, but only care about the person on screen. Because yeah. no one comes back from the bathroom and says, what was the last lighting shift? They want to know what happened to the person on screen, you know? Right, um, yeah. But Josh and Benny absolutely uh, carry the mantle. They have dissolved years of filmic tradition into a package that can be experienced by a mass audience, which is fucking incredible. Incredible. Uncut Gems played in a movie theater on Christmas in Minnesota. Do you know how fucking crazy that is? You know how fucking insane that is? It's a miracle. Um, however, my goal in life when it comes to watching movies, especially with my contemporaries, is that I go into a movie theater and when I leave, I don't have to make movies anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm extremely competitive, but I am productively competitive. We are all soldiers in a very fucking ancient war. And I don't like that language because, you know, war is an unconscionable farce. Um, all human suffering is and all things that cause it. But this movement out of the shadows, out of the caves, the idea that you, Stephen Hanley, are fucking amazing. Fucking incredible. It's insane that you exist and your capability is unlimited and you are here to help, right? That's what you're here to do. That is the shape of your organism. You are here to love and you are here to help. That's it, right? This is a, an idea that people have been trying to prove for centuries and are constantly at war with, with the wages of fear and, and, and destruction and and you know, this moment that we have right now of, of cinema, it's, 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 a, it's a soap bubble. It's insane that this exists. They would have killed us for this 200 years ago. We would have been murdered in the fucking streets. And for all we know, we will again. But, but these movies that we, that, you, know, you turn the camera on, you're in the arena, and it's immortal immediately. It's, 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 it's unbelievable. Oh, but I have not seen a movie that will make me never have to make a movie again, uh, unfortunately. Um, I don't know if that movie exists or could exist. There is a movie. There is something that I would like to prove. And if it was already proven, I would not have to do this. 100%. That's a great line to end on. All right. Bet. I think. Cool. That was great. Um, How do you feel about it? You know, I feel overexposed, embarrassed, you know, I, exactly as I should. Feel like this was a disaster, you know, whatever. <laughs> I feel like um, after I record every podcast, is. That, I think everyone does job. when you're just talking for an hour. But I'm, You should feel that way after you do anything. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I'd just like to thank you very, very much for um, sharing Honeybee with your audience. Um you know, all this bullshit about fucking directors and actors and what, like, until the lights go down and the screen comes up, there is no fucking movie. So it's a miracle to me that this, that anyone on earth will ever see Honeybee. So thank you very much for that. And to anyone who made it this far in the fucking <laughs> podcast, man, thank you so much. I, I really do hope you enjoy Honeybee. I, I hope you enjoy Let's Get Lost very much. Um... And, and to, you know, I think a lot of your people are, are film freaks, right? Absolutely. So to, to all... They're people like you and me. You, yeah. To all us freaks out there, man, the job is not done.
It's not done um, until we have proven beyond any possibility of a doubt that human beings are all powerful creatures of love to love. The job's not done. Okay, that's the line to end on. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking humiliating. Makes one short and tells everyone <laughs> how, 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 how to live. Hey, that's Fuck not fair. You, you. made two. <laughs> yeah, they don't know about the other one. I would love to just say that Alan Clark is one of the greatest storytellers ever. Um, Made in Britain and Scum are two films without which I would absolutely be dead. Uh, those are those are some of the greatest things ever done by a person. Did you ever see The Firm? The British hooligan? I did watch The Firm, man. The, you, know, you know what Oscar Wilde said about us, right? He said, England and America are two countries divided by a common language. Um, that movie was very specific to English culture at the time, and I found yeah. it hard... I found it difficult to access. Also, there's this thing in England. I mean, from an American point of view, there there is a whole school of film in England that presupposes: what if people were rude? <laughs> <laughs> and 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 so, like the 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 rude man mythology is not as resonant to me as it might be to a, to an Englander. Um, I found the people in the firm very rude, quite quite uncouth, actually. <laughs> just like made in britain is obviously a movie about a world that failed to love a man a young man and the consequences of that you know that that's a very important story to me and scum is a movie about how human beings can be brutalized by by structures and forms that we consider legitimate for some reason that we consider valid that shouldn't be I remember when I, I my my cousin used to have this um he 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 was really he was older than me and this was in the 90s and he had all like the Death Row Records albums and he had this great collection of videos and he had his cupboard which was just so magical cuz every time I'd go there he'd open up the cupboard there'd be like 100 movies you know all store bought and he'd say you can borrow one take one bring it back next time wow. and it was always it was just so exciting because he had all these like crazy 18 movies and all these cool indie movies and he had made in britain and i was like this looks cool and he's like you'll like that and i was like why and he's like someone does a shit on the floor <laughs> and i was like 13 like you serious i've never seen that in a movie he's like yeah it's got a skinhead and a guy shits on the floor i was like sold well, you know, you know, and this, this speaks to Honeybee a little bit too. I'm glad when sensational elements can help put see put people in the theater, but when people talk about movies like Bad Lieutenant, you know, they talk about Harvey Keitel's nudity or they talk about the the heroin man. First of all, that heroin is saline. That shit is fake. That is one of the greatest pieces of acting ever done, ever. And also, that story could have been written by Dostoevsky. That is a perfect fucking movie, kids. Everyone talks about kids. They're like, oh, documentary. Like, oh, New York. Like, look at it again. That Dolly tracks, multiple takes, incredible performances. 
perfectly structured film. It's an Orpheus descending story. It's about a woman deified by this disease, protected by it, who then descends through the levels of hell in order to save another young woman from a demon. It is an ancient story. It is perfectly structured, perfectly acted, perfectly executed. There has been a Teenagers Being Bad movie every year since the invention of the fucking camera. That is not what's special about kids. Kids is a perfect movie. So everyone who sees that movie and is touched by it and wants to do something, it's not blunts and skateboarders. It's fucking perfect construction and execution and mastery that make that movie that movie. There you go. Bam. That's a fucking big talk. Big homie Sam Stillman. Incredible director. Huge passion. He's going to do more great things. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks again, as always, to my engineer, Ewan Hinselwood, and Joshua Eustace, a.k.a. Telephone Tel Aviv, for all the beautiful music you just heard. Deeper into movies, Stephen T. Hanley. Thanks for listening. See you next time.